We've been in a series of sermons this summer from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and I chose that as I've been telling you every week because one of his primary purposes was to write that letter to encourage the people at Philippi. And they were going through some difficult times, and so he writes to encourage them. And as I was thinking about this, look at our times. You know, it seems to me we get so much bad news that everything's so negative that we need encouragement. And the gospel always encourages us. In fact, at the heart of the message of this little book, at the, the heart of it, it's about joy. It's about joy. And here's Paul now, who is in prison whose plans have been blocked, he's been mistreated, he's been treated terribly, and he's placed into this Roman prison, waiting, awaiting the ruling of a pagan king over an uncertain sentence that could mean death for him. And yet he writes this book about rejoicing. And last week we talked about rejoicing in God's providence. And we talked about dealing with difficult circumstances And these are some of the things we looked at. We said, when we go through those times of difficulty, remember that God doesn't always change the circumstances. But he gives us grace to navigate through them. And I don't know about you, I've looked over these last months. And it just seems like, you know, we've had to have God's grace and direction to navigate all through these times. And he always does that. Even when we get so overwhelmed with it, we get overcome with all of these things, and yet God is going to give us the grace that we need to navigate us through it. And we said God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And all things work together for good and for his glory. He's going to work all of that out. But we said the key was to keep our eyes on Jesus. We said it's so easy for us to get hung up in the negative circumstances that we forget that Jesus is Lord and he's in control. And I introduced you to a couple of verses last week out of, out of Hebrews where we're told, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, what, what are you going to put your, where's your mind going to go? Where, where's your focus going to be? And he says, fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember what he did for us. He endured the cross. He took all of the shame of the cross with him. And then the writer to the Hebrews goes on and says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not Grow weary and lose heart. He says, look at Jesus. And when we begin to consider him. So that's our purpose today. Our purpose today is to consider Jesus, to consider what he has endured for us, the pain that he suffered for us and all that he's gone through on our behalf. And today we're going to look at one of the most moving and powerful passages. You heard the you heard the choir saying this. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful passage which deals with the sufferings of Christ. It shows us how he humbled himself. It shows us the extent to which he went in suffering to be able to accomplish salvation so that we could be at peace with God and have eternal life. But he paid a huge price for it. And so our text this morning is Philippians 2. As we look at the first 11 verses, this is God's word. If you have any encouragement... From being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love. 
If any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant And being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? And this morning, Lord, as we open this scripture, it's impossible for us to grasp the extent of the sufferings of Christ. But we know that your spirit illuminates our hearts and and help us to Help us to get some understanding of it, to appreciate what he has done for us. And may it lead us to a deep sense of humility to think we're that loved. But also may it bring us to a great place of joy to realize how loved we really are. We thank you as we make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we begin to look, we're going to focus primarily on those verses that deal with the sufferings of Christ and what Christ went through. But the context of Paul's words about Christ had to do with humility. It was a call to humility. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You see, the primary character quality that he's talking about here is the quality of humility. It's the quality of humility. And always remember this. The gospel, by nature, humbles us. Because here's what the gospel says. The gospel says... We're a whole lot worse off than we ever thought we were. The gospel shows us our unworthiness, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the bad news of the gospel. And until you understand that, you can never appreciate the good news of the gospel, which is, but God loves us and values us and gave his son for us so that we could be with him for all eternity. But we have to start there. And we have to see our brokenness. We have to see our failures. We have to own up to those things. And when we do that, we look at our lives and we say, there is no basis at all for selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's no basis for that. And when we see ourselves 
in light of the gospel, it also shows us and enables us to think more highly of other people than we think of ourselves. We'll never do that on our own. You can never humble yourself enough for this. And so that's why immediately, where does Paul take us? He takes us to Christ. And he says this. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude, your mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus. And then he begins to systematically show us the extent of the humility of Christ. He takes us one step at a time as though he's showing us this picture of Christ's humility, this picture of Christ's humility. And he works us all the way through and he shows us what he's done for us. And when we get it, we can't help but be humbled. We have to look at that and say, why would anybody love me that much? Why would anybody do this for me? And yet, on the other hand, we're filled with joy because he did do it for me, because he loves me. And I'm valuable to him. In fact, he says we're precious to him. You see, that's the gospel. Now, I want to say something else just real quick here. What I'm not saying this morning is this. Be like Jesus and you'll get saved. You see, that's moralism. That's righteous, works righteousness. And that's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is this. Paul's writing to people who already have embraced Christ. And what he's saying to them is, now that we have Christ, we have the ability to have his attitude, to have his mind. Remember Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And because he lives in me, I'm able to appropriate from him his love, his power, his attitude, his mind. And so now what we have to do is begin to look and, and see what is it that Christ has done for us. And so we're going to concentrate on, on really two things here this morning. We're going to concentrate on the nature of Christ. This is elementary to a lot of you. But I hope to just remind us, you know, we've got to go back to the basics sometimes. The nature of Christ. And the second thing we're going to look at is the extent of his suffering, the extent of his humiliation. So we go to the passage. And it's very clear. So have this attitude that was in Christ. Now here it is systematically worked out. Who being in very nature God did not reconsider equality with God something to be grass. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Now, let's work through that. First of all, we've got to understand the unique nature of Jesus Christ. He was the most unique person who ever lived on the face of the earth. And I'll tell you why. Because he had a dual nature. On the one hand, he is fully God. We're going to look at that to start with here. He's fully God. He is God. But he is also fully man. He took upon himself humanity. We'll see that as we get into the text. Two distinct natures. In one person, not to be confused, two distinct natures. And so Paul starts with his deity. And he says this, who being in very nature God. Some of your versions say in very form God. That's the word morphe. And that word has to do with the very essence of being. The very essence of who he was. That 
inner essential and abiding nature. And so what Paul, he starts right there with that. He is in essence God, deity. Never forget that. He's deity. But then as he moves along, it's amazing what he says. Look, he is God. But we're going to see what he does. He is God. And this is consistent all the way through Scripture. We're told in Colossians 2, 9, for in him all the fullness of deity. Do you see it? All the fullness of deity belongs to him. You see it again in Hebrews 1. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. You see it in John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. There's no question. So Paul is saying, remember who we're talking about here. We are talking about none other than God himself. But then we begin to look about his his humility. And look at what we're told next. We're told that even though he is God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't hold on to it. He didn't keep his grip onto it. He didn't possess it as something not to be yielded up, even though he was equal with God. Though he had all of the rights and privileges of God, he didn't insist upon them. He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. And this is critical to understand. The way that Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for us was not to hold on to his rights and privileges as as God, but to forego them. And so he works on down. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. The better translation, I think, is he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, that doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. He never has ceased to be God. In other words, when he came to this earth, he didn't quit being God. He's forever been God. From all eternity, throughout all eternity, fully God. So what does it mean that he emptied himself or he made himself nothing? It means that he voluntarily gave up his heavenly glory. He veiled it. We sing a Christmas carol every year that Wesley wrote, Hark the Herald Angel Sings. And and Wesley put this line in He said. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You see, that's what he was talking about. Veiled in flesh. His majesty. And so it raises the question. And I'm only going to pick just a few examples of it. What does it mean he emptied himself? What is it that he gave up? Well, let me tell you first of all what he gave up. He gave up his riches. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, you do understand everything belonged to him. He's the creator. He is the owner. Every single thing belongs to him. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. Everything is his in heaven and on earth. They're all his. But he emptied himself. Look, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He gave it up. Why? So that you and I, through his poverty, see it? Through his poverty, may become rich. We become joint heirs with him. 
with all that's his. He gave up his riches. But he not only gave up his riches, when he emptied himself, he also yielded his will to the will of the Father. And you remember this. You remember probably the best illustration of this is in Gethsemane. Remember when he prayed, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine be done. He, he yielded his will to the Father. And then one more. When he emptied himself, the majesty of his deity was hidden from us. The majesty of his deity was hidden from us. Let me give you the examples here. Go to Bethlehem, the incarnation. Here's this child, this baby who is born. And who is this child that's in that manger? And by the way, he didn't have some halo over his head. He looked like an ordinary baby. He was none other than the creator God. He didn't cease to be God then. But the majesty of his divinity was hidden from us. And men didn't see it. Or go to the cross, and there on the cross, there's Jesus hanging on that cross in agony, bloody sacrifice. And what did men see? A common criminal, they thought. Do you see it? He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Though he was God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, made himself nothing, and then... We read, and he took on the nature of a servant. Not just any servant. Not just any servant. Doulos. Bond slave. Back in those days, Hebrew slaves served only for a period of time. Normally seven years, whatever it was. A period of time. And then they were released from their servitude. But a bond slave was someone different. A Hebrew slave who came to his master and said to his master, I want to permanently be your servant. I want to be attached to your house. You know what they did? They literally did that. They took that servant who wanted to be a bond slave and they took him to the doorpost of the house and they nailed his ear to the doorpost. And from that point on, that servant bore a mark, bond slave. He voluntarily yielded himself to serve that household permanently. Do you understand what this is saying? That Jesus Christ, in effect, said to the Father, I want to be the permanent servant of your people, God. I want to be her bond slave. I want to be his bond slave. And you know, it makes perfect sense when you stop and think of what Jesus said. For he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In other words, I'm the bond slave. I'm the servant. I've given myself permanently to be a servant to. Yes, King of Kings. But isn't this incredible? The King who becomes a servant to his people. Well, he not only took on the nature of a bond slave, but he took upon himself human nature as well. We're told being made in human likeness. In other words, he was fully human. There's the dual nature. Fully God, yes, but fully human. He became man. And that's where John says, and 
the word became flesh. There it is. And dwelt among us. He took upon himself humanity. He took upon himself human flesh. One of the greatest act of condescensions ever. Here's God who takes upon himself human nature. And it's amazing when you stop and think about that. The living God took upon himself human nature and came and lived among sinful people, even though he was totally sinless. Are you seeing this? The way he's taking us into understanding the extent of the humiliation of Christ. And then he goes on. And it says that he became obedient even to the point of death. He became obedient. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Which makes it so amazing when you stop and think about the core of the gospel message. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our heads. Here was the sinless one. The sinless one. Who was made sin for us. In other words, our sins, our failures, all of our, everything. Look, do you understand this message? All of your failures, they were placed upon him, the sinless one. And what did he do? He went to the point of death. He willingly gave up something that no one could ever take from him. And I want to talk about his death for a minute. This was not just another martyr's death. There have been plenty of martyrs who died terrible deaths throughout history, even some today. His death was unique in every way because it was an atoning death. There's a word that we use in, in uh, some of the passages in the New Testament. Romans, 1 John uses it. It's the word propitiation. And that's a word that literally meant he was the atoning sacrifice. So here's the way it worked. So here he is. By nature, very nature, essence, God took upon himself humanity, humbles himself, and our sins were placed upon him so that he became the substitute, the sacrifice. And what happened on the cross? When he was there on the cross, he bore the very wrath and displeasure of a holy God because of our sins. Think about that. He willingly embraced death and the wrath of God because of us. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, which is the last part of this. Here's the stinger. He became obedient to death. Here's the stinger. Even death on a cross. Listen, crucifixion was without a doubt the most humiliating form of death ever. In both the Gentile world and the Greek world and the Hebrew world, crucifixion was viewed as the most humiliating thing that could possibly happen. And in fact, in the Jewish mindset... Crucifixion actually meant curse. It meant that God had cursed somebody. In fact, you know, every time I'm with Charlie, I learn something new. He's taught me so much over the years. But after the first service, he leaned over to me. He said, you, you know, 
they invented a word because there really wasn't a word to explain what, how agonizing, how tormenting, how horrible crucifixion was. And so they invented the word excruciating. You, you hear crucifying that? That's Latin for cross. Excruciating, tormenting, indescribable humiliation. Excruciating. Because Jesus took our place. Look, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Here's what's being said. It's, almost, it's unimaginable to most of us. Here's what's being said. He goes to this cross, and there on the cross, our sins were placed upon him, and he became a curse. Now, let me explain. Blessing, curse. The idea of blessing is always acceptance. The idea of blessing is always favor. The idea of blessing is always relationship. That's the idea of blessing. But the idea of curse is exact opposite. Separated. Cut off. That's literally what it meant. Cut off. Broken relationship. And when you stop and think about it, when Jesus was on that cross and he became sin for us, he became a curse. He bore the curse. So much so, separated, cut off. What did he say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Cut off! Let me tell you, when you stop and think about this, it's absolutely overwhelming. And when you consider what Jesus has done for you, it ought to bring you to your knees. Because it makes us look at ourselves and see our failures and see our sin and see all of those things in our lives that bring displeasure to God. And Jesus took them all. But quickly, I want to say, once we've come to that point in repentance, all you talk about rejoicing. You talk about being able to have joy in your life. To be able to know that your sins are forgiven. That you've been made righteous before God. And that you belong to Him. You're His child that He loves and adores and wants to be with through all eternity. That's who we are. Because of what Jesus has done for us. He endured the cross. He bore the shame. He became a curse. So that we could be forgiven and made His own. So, full circle. Where do we go from here? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you get it now? He endured the cross, despising the shame, the humiliation, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition by sinners against himself. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider what he's done for you. And here's the beautiful thing. Christ goes through all of this, this humiliation, this horrible, horrible humiliation. He goes through all of that for us. But it doesn't end there. 
Because it goes on to say, therefore, because of what he's done, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see it this morning how we can rejoice in what Christ has done for us? Yes, never forget his pain. But he's exalted now. And as I exalted head, the one whose name is above every name. And as we close today, we close with this Wonderful, wonderful hymn that says, All praise to Thee, O King Divine, because He deserves it all. We walk out of here today, rejoice because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. I pray this morning, Jesus, that in some way we get some glimpse of what You have done for us. We come to you in deep confession. We come in sadness on the one hand. Because we realize that we're the ones who put you through that. We're the ones who caused you to have to endure the cross and the shame of it. You're the one who went through that excruciating pain And so, Lord Jesus, forgive us. But how grateful we are that you have given your life so that we could be forgiven. And we could be brought into a right relationship with you. We could be at peace with God. And know how much we are loved and valued by you. That you would do this for us. And so, how could we honor you? Only in thanksgiving and praise. And so we come this morning to praise you for who you are and for what you have done for us. For we make this prayer in your name, that name that's above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen.